0: Welcome to Sensationalist Science. I'm your host, MK, aka The Health Nerd, and this week I'm coming back to you after a very long hiatus. Sorry for the break. This week I'll be looking at ivermectin for COVID 19 in a special two part interview with Dr. Kyle Sheldrick. We're going to be discussing some of the investigations that we've taken part in looking at whether ivermectin for COVID 19 is based on fake or potentially very, very problematic research, and we're going to be discussing both the context behind ivermectin and why it's so popular, as well as what the evidence looks like now. Because a lot of this discussion concerns clinical trials that are online, I'm going to be linking to all of those in the show notes on SoundCloud, and I'm also going to be including some descriptions of meta-analyses and randomized control trials for the people who may not understand exactly all of the terms we're looking into. All that being said, enjoy the show! Okay, so welcome to Sensationalist Science. I'm talking to Dr. Kyle Sheldrick, who is a medical doctor and a researcher in the area of spines. Welcome to Sensationalist Science, Kyle. Hi, thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. So today we are talking about ivermectin, and this is a subject that both of us have spent, must be hundreds of hours now, this year on? Probably far too many hours,
1: realistically.
0: (laughs) We, I, I, think if I look back on my emails, we've got something like about two or three hundred emails between the two of us and various authors just asking about ivermectin stuff,
1: and thousands of Twitter DMs. I mean, let's be honest, this is a, this is a an endeavour underpinned by Twitter. We first met on Twitter. Uh, in fact, I think most of our co-authors from the recent paper we've been talking to on Twitter. So at least hundreds of hours, thousands of messages.
0: Yeah, so a little bit of background for the listeners. Kyle and I, as well as Jack Lawrence, James Heathers, and Nick Brown, have recently had a paper in Nature Medicine where we talk about uh, the ivermectin and COVID-19 literature. I would suggest you have a read. It's going to be in the show notes. Uh, If you're interested in in this topic, it's a very short uh, and to-the-point piece of literature. But we're going to be talking a lot about ivermectin and COVID-19 in this episode as well. So I guess the first question really is, um, what is ivermectin, Kyle? Because as a primarily diabetes researcher before the pandemic and a COVID researcher for the last 18 months, like most epidemiologists have become, uh, I never really had heard of ivermectin before the pandemic came around, but you've prescribed it.
1: Yeah, so ivermectin is a medication mainly for treating worms, but we do actually use it for other non-worm parasites as well. In Australia, that's mainly scabies, especially in northern Australia, so northern Queensland and the Northern Territory. And the way it works is reasonably well understood in parasites. So that is in in invertebrates that don't have a vertebral column like you and I. What ivermectin does is it interferes with the way that nerves and muscle cells work. So you have all these different receptors and these different channels that allow ions to flow in and out so that your nerves and muscles can work by depolarizing. So, you know, everything in your body that's a nerve or muscle runs on electricity and ivermectin for these parasites completely stuffs that up. It means they can't depolarize, the nerves can't work, the muscles can't work and they die. So that's, if you'd asked anyone sort of two or three years ago, what is ivermectin? That's the answer they would have given. It's an anti-parasite medication, really, really effective. Changed the world for a lot of parasitic infections. And it does that by interfering with their nerves and muscles. Yeah, and I think it's
0: important to note, it it really has changed the world. So in Africa, there are these mass drug administration programs, MDAs, uh, where people are given ivermectin, two ivermectin pills a year, uh, as well as I think a couple of other drugs, depending on the MDA that we're talking about. And they've essentially eliminated uh, oncosoriasis. Sorry, onchoceriasis onchocerciasis i keep yeah. i cannot say that
1: uh, just call it river blindness everybody river does. blindness
0: they've essentially eliminated river blindness from the entire continent there are still countries where there's endemic river blindness but in the vast majority of people the
1: disease is basically gone which is amazing and, and not just one disease i mean things like strungaladiasis had very limited treatment options before this and you know as a as a drug for a public health intervention for something like that Ivermectin was just amazing. It was effective. It's a relatively safe drug at the doses we give for that with very few side effects, very few interactions. And you could give a small dose in some settings just once a year and get excellent control. And in fact, for almost no indications were they giving it more than once every sort of three months. So as a public health intervention for parasites, amazing. One of the greatest things that medical science ever developed
0: yeah I, I think the the biggest mda that remained before the pandemic was for lymphatic lymphatic filariasis mm-hmm. and they were giving one ivermectin pill a year to about 350 million people on the continent of africa yep which is i mean as a public health intervention i literally cannot think of another drug that is commonly given to that many people except for maybe statins
1: yeah Yeah. It's just Um, incredible. Huge. Yeah.
0: But everything kind of changed at the beginning of the pandemic. So one thing that's worth noting is that these MDAs actually stopped um, when the pandemic happened, because all of these governments and the the World Health Organization, which coordinates it, stopped giving ivermectin uh, because they had other things to worry about. Um, But also uh, a study from, I think it was Monash University, Definitely, yep. one of the ones in Melbourne found some activity for ivermectin in vitro. and this sparked yep. uh, in in petri cells, and this sparked a great deal of global interest, which was then followed by a fraudulent study uh, from Surgosphere. Yep. which I mean, that really changed the world, I think, because the several governments, the Peruvian government, um include as well as some other places in the world, some places in India, immediately, said, okay, well, if ivermectin works, then it's cheap, it's it's easy to access for us, we've got many doses, we're just going to give it to everybody. And they did. Um, and then this paper was withdrawn, um, because it was fake. And unfortunately, I guess the damage was already done.
1: Yeah. So there's sort of two things I would say about that. One is that this idea of ivermectin for COVID wasn't thunder from a clear blue sky, there was a little bit of precursor to this in that ivermectin had been looked at as an antiviral agent before, especially in the setting of dengue fever. But it's another example of where the medical publishing model we have at the moment just fails spectacularly. So there was a paper uh, published in uh, PLOS NTDs, Neglected Tropical Diseases, claiming incredibly strong and consistent effects uh, on uh dengue virus in a mosquito study. The problem is I think it is very clearly faked. Uh, PLOS are really dragging their feet. It's been almost two years since I pointed out to them that the chance of distribution in this study is billions to one. That uh, went just on... for
0: the for the listeners, PLOS Public Library of Science is a jo- a scientific journal.
1: Yeah. So I that was research from a very prestigious institution and I wrote to the journal and pointed out this is very unlikely to be true. So essentially the problem is they repeatedly ran this experiment in about 20 mosquitoes at each dose level and they did multiple lots of 20 mosquitoes at each dose level and at each dose level every group of 20 was Essentially identical. So they ran 24 trials, and 23 of them got the perfect result. Came within a fraction of one mosquito to the others. <laughs> um, just not even questionable. Like it was serious schutzba to do what they did, because they then fitted these 24 tiny trials to a perfect um, re- uh, exponential regression curve. So, and when sorry,
0: what, look, you said what was that word you used? Schutzba? Yeah, it's it's a sound, chutzpah.
1: Okay. I, I, <laughs> as an expert, I will take your <laughs> uh, advice.
0: Uh, apologies but, for breaking your flow. I just, I couldn't let that one pass.
1: Okay. Um, the, but, you know, these things, people go, oh, well, what do you care about animal trials like that? This went on to have a huge human uh, randomised control trial, really well done uh, through the Thai government, failed spectacularly, didn't change clinical outcome at all. But because it was a negative trial, in a tropical disease, in a low to middle income country, never got published. So they published the positive animal finding. The massive human trial was actually only presented at the National um, Thai Physicians uh, Congress as an abstract, saying we did this in hundreds of patients, really well done, blinded, allocation concealed, no change. And it didn't get published, probably because it was negative. So we actually have a medical research publishing system, which is set up much better to really amplify positive findings and proportionally bury negative findings. So I can see why people looked at ivermectin. Uh, it wasn't completely silly.
0: I mean, but that's fascinating because what what it what you're saying is that even kind of this basis, of ivermectin as a potential antiviral may be in part or even more than in part based on scientific misconduct as well.
1: Yes. That's, in fact, I'm I not mean, even saying maybe, I'm saying it is.
0: Um, I mean, that's I, remarkable because, I mean, as I think we'll get into, most, it, it sounds like the entire story of ivermectin for COVID and I guess other viruses is basically based on fraud, which is crazy.
1: Yeah, I think fraud plays a huge part in what has happened to date, uh, because part of the issue is, as you said at the start, even once the study's retracted, in some ways the damage is done, and that's true. It's very hard to, it's much harder to unlearn something than to learn it, and to undecide something than to decide it. And part of the issue that you know I've seen and you've seen is that a lot of the legitimate trials with disappointing results came out long after the clearly fabricated trials with excellent results. I think partly because it's just much faster to fake a study than to run one. And so that's an inherent sort of weakness of our system that because the fake studies that just you could never actually run as quickly as they claimed, things like Surgisphere and Carveo and things like that, it means that generally, the more rigorous the research, the later it comes out, and we know that is less effective in changing what people think. We actually have a system which preferences bad research because it comes out fast.
0: Okay, so I think this is a good point to move to. I, I guess the next step in the story, because yep. it, so the the story I guess starts with this pre COVID dengue research that is probably yep. fake. It moved into some real research from Monash University that showed cells in Petri dishes uh, were improved by ivermectin, essentially. Um, Then it moved into Surgisphere, which was also uh, fake research. And then I think what what kind of happened at that point for most of the world is that the um, recovery trial results came out we had dexamethasone as an effective treatment for people who were very ill remdesivir was demonstrated to at least reduce hospitalization time although have very minimal death benefits and most and there were monoclonal antibody treatments that were being trialed and and i think in most of the richer countries people just moved on to these more expensive treatments yeah um and so that's what most of the randomized large randomized control trials like recovery and like uh, solidarity started to focus on which i think it is, is is a huge indictment on the research community, frankly, because what happened at that point was I, ivermectin was very commonly used in these developing countries where people had no treatment options because they couldn't afford to spend $3,000 on, on a single patient. Hmm. And towards the end of last year, mostly in November and December, some very low-quality randomized trials started popping up. And, I mean, I don't know... Di- did you see um, these trials before Jack Lawrence kind of...
1: I don't know the exact time because I, I don't know if this is me revealing secrets and you can always edit it out if it is. <laughs> but the way that we sort of ticked the Elgazar thing was I noticed completely different things to Jack. And the first thing that I noticed was the impossible standard deviations. Um, and I sent you that Twitter direct message saying that, oh, I think this trial Elgazar is fake. And you said, do you mind holding off just for sort of 24 (laughs) hours while I put you in touch with someone? Because you're not the first person to contact me saying that. And then it all sort of kicked off from there. But it's one of the things I find really interesting is there've been a few times now where a few of us have independently come to the same trial and gone, this looks rubbish, but for different reasons. That in fact, often there's not one red flag, there's multiple red flags.
0: Yeah, so I mean, like how I got around to it You know, I've been quite publicly reviewing scientific evidence throughout the pandemic.
1: And so people
0: send me I get at least three or four studies a day where someone will pop into my DMs or my emails and say, here's a study. Can you review it? And at least half of them are. people sending me vaccine trials, anti-vaccine advocates saying, why don't you look at the vaccines? And so most of them I ignore, frankly, because I've read all the vaccine trials and I've been very public about the things that I th- think are good and the things I think are bad. And perhaps in another episode, we can talk about Sputnik, which is yeah. a, a bugbear of Kyle's. <laughs> but um, when it comes to el Gazar, um, I actually noticed it, I was first sent it, I think, in January 2021, or maybe even December 2020. And I read through it and I thought, this is one of the worst trials that I've ever read. One of the worst randomized control trials that I've ever read. Because they were missing, from an epi- epidemiological perspective, you know, we run through these lists of um of grading. And most doctors, I know you're not most doctors, but most doctors won't have uh, seen the risk of bias assessment tool from yep. Cochrane since their one lecture in their epidemiology unit 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we've got this, you, if you run through Rob, for, or Rob2 now, for Elgazar, what you'll find is that it's an extraordinarily high risk of bias. They don't describe mm-hmm. basic stuff like allocation concealment. They report 100% follow-up, which to me is just it's not a reasonable thing for anyone to yeah. ever have in, a, in an actual trial, almost by definition means that they've imputed some sort of data in most trials. If you report, you've got data for 100 percent of people. Yeah. And they were also lacking just, I guess, basic information about how they did the trial. Yeah. You don't just 600 person RCTs with a prophylaxis arm don't just pop out of nowhere. Yeah. And they, they didn't have... You know, all of this, it just didn't add up very much. Yeah. And so I said that at the time, and I, I wrote a blog about this in April, I think, 2021, where I just said, look, this is very low quality. Um, I'm, it you know, didn't even think about fraud at that point. Mm. And then Jack Lawrence, who originally contacted Nick Brown, and Nick told him to contact me because I had written about this trial publicly. Yep. Jack emailed me and said, uh, oh, did you know the entire introduction is fake? Uh, it's plagiarized, and I was like, "Oh, that's bad." And then he was like, "And I've got the data file, and I don't think it's real." Yeah. <laughs> and this was when you messaged me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, let's let's talk about the data file. What did you notice when you when you read this data file? Uh, actually, sorry. Before we get into that, just some background for all of the listeners. So El Ghazar. It was one of the largest randomised trials of ivermectin for COVID-19. It was relatively recently in July. It was withdrawn from the preprint server it was hosted on. Um, It appears to be very likely fraudulent. um, And we, Kyle and I were involved with kind of looking into the issues with the study, as well as Jack Lawrence and Nick Brown, who we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess the first thing was actually even before I saw the file was... I was stunned by the risk of bias uh, assessment for this trial, because you say if a doctor's seen a risk of bias assessment, I don't think that's enough. You would have to do it yourself. Because when I look at, for instance, far and away, the most popular meta-analysis out there is the bryant Laurie one. Uh, According to Altmetric, it's the ninth most discussed scientific paper of all time, and it didn't rate a single a single feature of Elgazar as high risk. So, you know, Elgazar, which never even mentioned anything about allocation concealment, doesn't appear anywhere in the text, was given a low risk rating. Lopez Medina, which they obviously didn't like the results of, which explicitly <laughs> says how they did allocation concealment in the text, was given uncertain. So... I'd go uh, even further. Just, just they... for
0: context, also the Brian Teddow meta analysis. This is a meta analysis, a published meta analysis on ivermectin from, uh, I guess, the most accurate thing would be pro ivermectin advocates.
1: Yes. Um, so I guess I sort of went into this, looking at this data sheet, sort of doubting myself and thinking there's something I've gotten wrong here and this is actually legitimate. And the first thing I noticed that completely struck me was the ferritin level. So ferritin is a storage form of iron. Uh, we use it in Australia for that purpose. It gets ordered by GPs for things like fatigue. I have never done a ferritin on a patient coming into the <laughs> department. In some parts of the world, ferritin uh, is used instead of things like CRP because it's cheaper uh, and has some uh, role as an acute phase reactant to track the extent of inflammation, but it's certainly not common. And out of the first 400 patients, the 400 inpatients, there were none missing at baseline. And I just went, there is no way if you had 400 acute patients. Remember, these are patients coming into hospital with COVID-19. Some of these patients are crashing straight from ED to ICU. Uh, These are acutely unwell patients being recruited into a clinical trial at a time at which they are sick enough that they need to be hospitalised. And no one is missing this baseline blood test, this ferritin. I went, that's just not true. And so that's when I started looking at the distribution of the ferritins. And even before I ran an actual formal uh, trailing digit test where we look at what is the last number in the blood test? Going that you know, for a blood test that's in the hundreds to thousands, the last number, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, should be spread more or less randomly. Once you get that far out, it should be a fairly even distribution rather than some of the other distributions we see. And even before I ran a test, I scrolled down and went, none of these end in three. You know, I was scrolling for pages and pages because there were 400 of these. And I had to look through something like seven or eight pages before I found my first one ending in three. And I went, that's not a pattern. There is no genuine disease or anything like that that makes your ferritin less likely to end in three. You know, sometimes we see measures like Patient estimated weight. If you say what is the patient's weight and just get them to guess, you will see a lot of heaping on nine. A lot more people are going to say they weigh 89 kilos and they weigh 90. Sometimes if you're getting age in areas without uniform birth certificates, you can see heaping on zero and five. Uh, and certainly for blood pressures that are manually taken, you will see heaping on fives. Uh,
0: there is, my my favourite is if you ask heights, you'll get heaping on um, – uh, heights in inches, you get yep. heaping 12, uh, multiples of 12. Yep. Because people always like to say
1: that they're an even foot. You yep. get a lot of people saying they're six foot. Yeah, exactly. And so those ones you go, okay, a blood test that a computer spits out, no. Computers don't have those sort of biases. They don't go, I don't like numbers ending in three and I love numbers ending in eight. And so I just – on Excel you used, you know, the right command to extract what is the last digit for each and just counted them up. And it was so wildly, millions and billions to one maldistributed. I went, oh my God, they've faked the ferritins. <laughs> and at that point, I th- was still thinking this is a real trial, um, but they've um, faked the sum of the data. And then the second thing I noticed and it wasn't until Gideon pointed out the full implications of it, I mean, oh, the death dates are just cycling. But I hadn't realized, because, you know, you look at these things in sort of, and you get down a rabbit hole and get blinkers. I didn't realize that most of the patients who died, died before the trial started. I hadn't, you pointed that out to me, Gid.
0: Yeah, it was, it was fascinating because, so the, the different ways that we found out issues with this trial, like um, I, so the, the data set is public. Um in theory, and they locked the Excel spreadsheet. Um yeah, and Jack Lawrence guessed the password as one, two, three, four, which I mean remarkable. Yeah. But so Jack told me, oh, here's the data set, and I said, Okay, I'm I'm not gonna trust you, you're a random guy I don't know from England. I'm going to download it myself. I paid nine dollars to this this malware filled <laughs> repository. I mean, my my antivirus software was like, Don't go to this website, and I did it anyway. Uh, <laughs>
1: sacrificing for science.
0: Sacrificing for science, indeed. I downloaded the data set, and the first thing that I did, I was like, okay, I want to see the deaths in this in this data set because death data is 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 the most important. It's the biggest thing that they've got. So all I did was I filtered the deaths and I was like, these can't be right. Because they all say the 22nd of May, but the study started on the 6th of June. And it yeah they, they had about a third of the people who died of the 24 people who who are reported to have died in the study died before the study started um so either they recruited ghosts or they had a problem there
1: yeah um and it's funny how how much you can miss once you find one problem so this is something we always sort of one of the hardest things to teach medical students especially when they're looking at things like arm and leg fractures is just because you found a problem, doesn't mean everything else is okay, um, and that's this human bias to say I have found the problem. The most common time that that frac- that fractures, broken bones are missed in the arms and legs, are when you've already found another broken bone, and so you sort of stop looking. And so, like I remember with the repeated patient blocks, I went, ah. Oh, there's this block of patients that appears twice is one block and you and it was you that said to me there's not this one block of patients appearing twice Uh, like it was just this tiny one because I noticed that the deaths were repeating in a cycle you meant the deaths aren't repeating a whole cycle the whole patient block is, is repeating and more than that there's patient blocks repeating ones with no um with no deaths and they've just changed one outcome on each line like even where for some reason, which I have no idea why it's in the data set, there's the patient initials. Like, remove. usually when you upload a data set, you'd remove anything that can be used to identify the patients. So you wouldn't usually have the patient's exact date of birth. You certainly don't have patient name. There's no reason to put in patient initials. That actually isn't a useful feature. No one's going to go out there and go, hmm, I really need to test whether the patient's Surname affects mortality. Is mortality alphabetic?
0: Yeah, well, when I first opened up the trial and I saw that there were initials in there, I thought, this is a huge red flag. They should not have put initials in because you yeah. can identify these people. You, from death data, you can absolutely identify people if you've got initials, 100%. Yeah. You could look through papers, find obituaries, and say that was the person who died there.
1: Yeah, but then they didn't even bother to change the initials when they copied and pasted blocks of patients. So we had these runs of, like, 20 patient initials repeating.
0: But it was even worse than that, because they sometimes they changed one initial. So clearly they'd copy-pasted, and then someone had gone through, and they'd gone, ah, yeah. oh, it says AAA, and then it, five, ten lines later it says AA. So now I'm going to change that to AAV.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was mainly middle initials, I think, they changed. But, yeah, it was just... I was... I mean, I wasn't just done because it was fake. If you had asked me about, before we all started looking at these, how many fake papers there would be out there, I was like, oh, I don't know there'll be a properly like fake paper. There'll be badly designed ones, but I don't know that there'll be a fake, let alone the sort of incredible numbers of outright fraud that we've seen. So I guess part of it is, because Elgazar was the first major one, I didn't open it looking for fakes. It took me half an hour to go from how have they stuffed this up this badly and oh my God, these are the worst trialists in the world to going they haven't stuffed this trial up because they haven't run this trial. This is fraudulent. It actually took, if I saw that data set again today, I would immediately go that's fake much more quickly than, we did, than I think any of us did at the time. But the other thing that stunned me was just how brazen it was and how brazen so many of these are. Like, I like to think I would never fake a trial. I can't picture any anywhere where I'm going to go out there and go, this is an incredibly lethal, this is an incredibly infective disease affecting millions of people in hundreds of countries and causing, I think at that point, probably hundreds of thousands of deaths, maybe millions already, and I'm going to fake A trial but if i did it wouldn't look like this like there is nearly zero covering of tracks i have seen faked student assignments that were more convincingly faked than this the just the level of brazenness not just in elgazar but in so many of the ones we've looked at i just look at this and go you really genuinely thought there was zero chance of you getting caught didn't you Anyone who thought there was any realistic chance of them getting caught wouldn't produce a data set like this.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, with Elgazar, one of my favourite things is, and look, so since the trial has been retracted, I think the the Elgazar, the, the lead author in question, has said months ago, ah, oh, there was fake data that someone else uploaded onto our study, but really we've got a real data set. Um, And he has yet to release that data set. I think all of us would be very interested in seeing him if he if he does have any other data set. But the thing about this trial is you don't even need the data set to say this need this needed to be retracted because it was trivially plagiarized. They copy pasted sentences, changed one or two words, and that made up their entire introduction and part of their methods. Yeah. Any plagiarism-checking software would have picked it up. And I think partly that's that may be why it wasn't published, this this study wasn't published, was yep. because most journals do actually run their papers through plagiarism software just so they don't get sued, and anyone would have picked this up.
1: Hmm. But and, I guess, yeah.
0: Well, like, you're right. Like, how could anyone have expected to get away with that? I mean, some I think the authors said, oh, it's normal to copy-paste things in Egypt, which is a remarkable
1: a remarkable claim. to make. But the thing that has partly disappointed me about this one is not just that it was so incredibly fake, but in the way that it bypassed the traditional publishing model. This wasn't just a pre-print. I think this was almost a paraprint. It was almost a pre-print instead of a paper. It got incorporated into major meta-analyses as though it was a paper. And again, I hate to sort of just... um, pick on one group and bash them. But that Bryant-Laurie meta-analysis that said in there explicitly, we didn't consider preprints to be an increased risk of bias because we personally scrutinised and peer reviewed everyone. The number of ivermectin advocates on Reddit and anti-vax advocates who've come back to me with that particular thing and said, see, it was peer reviewed because they used that exact phrase. And it has been scrutinized by people who are more expert than you. It lent incredible credibility from people who were willing to essentially undermine what is decades of accepted scientific practice.
0: Yeah, I I kind of agree. I mean, I don't think it can be understated how awful that meta-analysis really was, Mm. um, because it, it's remarkable how virtually no studies that were positive for ivermectin, including several that are not just Cazar, but some other ones that we're going to discuss shortly, are being retracted right now as we speak yep. in theory. And these were all rated as low risk of bias for mo- most domains. The, the Most of them were not rated as high risk of bias for any domain, even yep. though they were totally fabricated. Yep. And so I think Basically, that meta-analysis took these remarkably low-quality studies that were f- on face value bad and yep. could not have been conducted as, as they de- were described, even if you just read them. They must have had mistakes. Yeah. And it said these studies are good and completely whitewashed the studies. So no, Because no one really goes through and reads the studies included in a meta-analysis, they trust that the peer review and that the authors have done their job. And so they took these awful studies and they said, moderate certainty evidence, you can use ivermectin. And that was, that became the, um, I guess, the, the common understanding.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, even so, the Bryant one in particular did a trial sequential analysis, which for people who don't know is a technique to look at, is the evidence adequate? Essentially, can we stop looking at this? And they concluded very strongly that the evidence was overwhelmingly adequate. We had all the evidence we need to say that ivermectin uh, saved lives. And it was almost an implicit call to stop researching this. So it went it went even further. But I guess the other thing is that, I, I can only really speak for spine more than infectious diseases, but we have this thing of, and it goes across all qualities of meta-analysis, even the Cochrane meta-analyses, if something is not clear from the paper, you contact the authors. And I think that's really dangerous. And for me, logically, I think if I think of the Venn diagram in my head of some of the important steps, like we're saying allocation concealment. So that is, it's important not just to randomly order who gets what medication, but to hide who is getting the next medication from the doctors or whoever's enrolling so that they don't decide to enroll sicker patients into one arm. The number of it's the sort of thing that's incredibly important, and if you're an amateur who's never done RCTs before and has very little, limited knowledge, you won't do. I think the number of trials that don't think allocation concealment is important enough to put in their paper, but genuinely did allocation concealment, is nearly zero. Those Venn diagrams, the circles in the Venn diagram barely touch, and yet we have this sort of opportunity that all these trialists who didn't even think to mention allocation concealment we just call them up and say oh did you know did you do this and if they go oh yeah yeah we did that then you just have to trust them and i think that's also dangerous so i mean you know we've talked about this before um privately and i think in some way seeking extra information from uh authors of the original trials, while it's completely accepted, and I can't criticise any of the meta-analysts for doing it because it is accepted practice, I think we do need to seriously consider whether that practice is a net good. Yeah, look, I think one of the big messages
0: from Ivermectin, and this is what we argued in our paper in Nature, is that we we have to take a bit less trust. We yep. have to take some of the trust out of scientific publishing.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't want to go too heavily into what how the sausage is made but there's a range of views even amongst us obviously that's something that all of us agreed on and there's a much broader range of views outside our author group and some people think uh that's too extreme a step to say so we've said that if you don't have raw data you don't get a meta-analysis that's the future um some people think that's too extreme and you know there are a range of reasonable positions that we don't hold. It's not that anyone who doesn't agree with us is a crank, but I do think that maybe some of the people who think that, think that at least in part, because even if you've been following everything Gid and I have said publicly up till today, and I don't know how long after this recording it's going to come out, but as of today when we've recorded, most of the fraud we're we're aware of is not public. I think that's probably fair to say. Probably about a third is public and two thirds is private. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's there's good reasons for why that is. In some cases, um, without naming any papers, authors have told us that they are going through the retraction process, whether that's true or not. I mean, I don't personally have any evidence, but we're giving them a reasonable period of time since they have said they wanted to an author that one. That's fine. There's others where Git and I are on about email 6,000 with the journal editors Um I think three months from now, when this is all out or a significant portion of this is out and people realise just what proportion of this was driven by fraud, I think at least some of those people will change their opinion. I mean, we heard similar arguments when we started to about only pre-registered trials should be included. People going, oh, you know, you can't just throw out half the evidence. Well, it's not about throwing out half the evidence. If we say this is the minimum standard to get published this is the minimum standard to be in a meta-analysis then people will meet that standard that's what we saw with pre-registration a lot of trialists hated it in fact i don't even think most trialists supported it initially but kicking and screaming they were dragged to better practice and that's what we need to do again
0: yeah and, and look from my perspective um i am currently running two randomized trials Yep. with uh, within an organization that is incredibly resistant to sharing data in any form yep. and I don't know I honestly don't know if it's possible for us to org- for, for me to change the organization enough that I will be allowed to share IPD for meta-analysis when they come around.
1: But I will try and yeah. I am currently in the process of trying and and I think it would be easier for you to do that if it was an accepted minimum standard rather than an optional extra. Just like some research institutes in the days of optional pre-registration discouraged their trialists from pre-registering on the idea that someone would scoop you. Now that it is an accepted standard, there is no university or research institute on earth that is saying that to their researchers. So I think we have to, there's this sort of, sometimes this, Intellectual fallacy that we are asking individuals to make decisions where systems and standards don't change. That's not true. In fact, the two interact. It's a two way street of causality. Once something becomes an accepted standard, organizations, institutions will find ways to make it more doable.
0: And I think uh, I should also say, from my perspective as, as an epidemiologist, there are some areas where we will never be able to share data. Yes. Um, the large administrative data sets that capture hundreds of columns, all of which are used in analyses, yeah. simply um, they simply do not allow for data sharing because you, there is no way to de-identify them sufficiently that you cannot identify people in these analyses. And particularly yeah. if you have the date that someone gave birth, you can always almost always identify them from... Um, yeah from some of the data fields there because people usually post birth notices of some description even
1: if it's just on Facebook. Yeah and there will always be those sort of exceptions some highly stigmatized diseases and some particular the other one I'm thinking of is there's certain time to event analyses that will be really difficult to share the underlying data because of significant dates. Um, But I think we also have to We also have to recognise just how stuffed up the system is at the moment. Mm. So, Florian Nordet, who is very sort of eminent in meta-research, I remember one of his applications on Vivli, which is a data-sharing platform for trials. I would say primarily pharmaceutical trials, but not exclusively pharmaceutical trials. And you can see the outcomes of all the ones that made it to the individual pharmaceutical companies. And, like, there's one there where I think it's uh, requested seven studies from different pharmaceutical companies, and one was, as part of the same trial, funded by the French government's equivalent of the NHMRC, their national funding body, to a recognised professor at a French university for this formal study on, uh, I think it was, trials underlying EMA applications, so the European Medicines Authority. And one of them from AbbVie released it, and then six studies from other pharmaceutical companies were rejected as lacking scientific merit for the same application. And so I think we have to also understand just how broken the system is now. So, for instance, if Pfizer follow their policies, then their data will be available to request on Vivli in about 2025 <laughs> from the phase three trials. And, you know, we slammed a uh, Carveo, uh, who ran a large Argentinian study, for saying he would release his data once the pandemic was over. Pfizer are implicitly saying the same thing, unless they waive their policies. I
0: do think that the vaccine trials, and actually registered pharmaceutical company trials, are slightly different. And the reason why is because they are bound by regulation in a way that a lot of these trials are not. They have an independent monitoring board who has uh, access to all of the data from the trial And when they submit to the FDA, they are required to provide, um, well, they're they're required to have audits. And those audits usually involve looking at individual line data and checking individual patient records. So while I will say that for people like you and I, who are suspicious fucks, um, it is plausible that the Pfizer trial may not have been conducted. Well, sorry. It's it's very unlikely. Okay. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is, We might be very suspicious of of things, but we can say that it has been audited by experts in this area and they have said that it's perfectly okay. Independent experts who are not paid by Pfizer
1: and who are not involved with the organisation in any way. Yeah, and even beyond that, for pharmaceutical trials, I have to go to things like the FDA. And so one of my other hats is um, developing some regulated diagnostic products. If you go to the FDA with a clinical trial, after it's over with just an Excel spreadsheet or an SPSS data set or start or whatever it is, you will be told to do the trial again. So the minimum standard is a thing called EDC, which is Electronic Data Capture Platforms. And there's a few of them, but they have an absolutely unfakeable audit trail. So if you work in academia, you've probably used one called RedCap um, in Australia, which is overwhelmingly used by academic institutions. There's one called RedCap Cloud, which I use for our commercial ones which you have to pay for, and there's some others there. But you can't just sit down and type out a column of data. It says who entered what, each person's an individual login, on what day, and if it's changed after the fact, there is an audit trail there of who changed it on what day, and you have to justify why. So a lot of these problems that we see in the ivermectin trials just could not occur in the vaccine trials. And I always get badgered by anti-vax people on Twitter, being like, why are you looking at ivermectin and not vaccines and I sort of have to go well one there's one of me how many hours do you think I have in a day (laughs) that you're not actually entitled to have me to have my time to look at whatever your particular passion is but the other thing is I say well because the um, the scale of cooperation you would have to have from thousands of people against their own interest for no reason to fake certainly all of the vaccines that are registered in Australia, is just so wildly implausible that there is almost no point in me doing it. Knowing the system as I know it, I am absolutely confident that for all the vaccines registered in Australia, so for Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, that data has not been faked in this way.
0: Yeah, I agree. But And actually, I think this is a great point to move into the rest of the ivermectin literature because we've been talking meta science for a little while. And I think that kind of brings us to, I guess, the next study. So this isn't public as we're recording, but it will be public when the podcast goes out. Um, The next study that we found, uh, I guess, the next randomized trial that we found that was definitely fake um, has quite an amazing story behind it. um, Because what happened was, we were requesting data, or Kyle at, actually at this point was requesting data from all of the bigger RCTs into ivermectin. And I decided that I would jump on the train and do it as well. Um, and so I had been sent a trial with remarkable positive results. Um, so this this was a Lebanese trial uh, conducted by uh, Dr. Samar, uh, Samaha et al. The corresponding author was a Dr. Raad. Yes. Um, and so to to understand how big the positive results here are they they tested people before and after treatment with ivermectin or a placebo and they were looking at the cycle threshold of a pcr test and that gives you an idea of how much viral rna was present in the samples although they didn't actually report standardizing it as you're meant to to get uh, comparable cts but regardless they were using just a simple ct count as their Um, as their meter of comparison. And they found, so there's a way of standardizing mean differences where you can compare uh, two very different numbers. So let's say the mean of weight and the mean of height and the mean difference between before and afters. You can compare both of those. So you can have a mean difference for weight that's standardized and gives you an idea of how many standard deviations difference the weight has changed and you can compare that to the difference in heights and how many standard deviations the height has changed Um, even though the weight may have gone from the average weight may have gone from 90 down to 85 and the average height's gone from 180 down to 175 obviously this isn't these aren't real numbers but even though those numbers are very different you can still compare them because you've standardized it and so this is called cohen's d Uh, a usual cohen's d for your kind of uh, normal trial. Uh, below 0.2 is considered low. Between 0.2 and 0.5 is high. 0.5 to, to 1 is very high. And above 1 is almost unheard of in clinical research. And for reference, the, uh, the estimate, this is not a Cohen's D, this is a Cohen's H, similar idea. It's it's uh, for differences in proportion. The Cohen's H for survival for AZT for HIV, so this is antiretroviral therapy for HIV, for people dying of AIDS, um, the Cohen's H is 0.7. And the Cohen's D in the, stu- the NEGEM study that looked into this in 1989, um, I think was about 1. So that's a huge, massive effect, is, is 1, where almost everyone who's given the drug survives, and, very, and a lot of people who, are given, who aren't given the drug die. This study reported a Cohen's D of 3.2. 3.24 exactly. Um, That is quite literally uh, the biggest result that I had ever seen in a published paper on this metric, ever. So I requested the data, and the lead author said, I will give you the data for $1,500 US. And then... (laughs) (laughs) Kyle's laughing because, well, you explain.
1: Well, for one, he told me $1,000. You obviously (laughs) look like a much easier mark than me. Um, But that is stunning. So usually if someone comes to you and says, I would like to see your data to check it for fraud, this is not us doing something for personal gain. It is never something that you would pay for, and I've never had anybody else do that. So, I mean, I've... We didn't just target trials that had big effects. We tra- targeted lots of legitimate trials, and m- most of the legitimate authors fall over themselves for you to look at their data. So, Dr. Lopez Medina, he was away on, he was actually wasn't in the, hosp- in the hospital, in the office at the time, but he contacted their research office on my behalf to facilitate me getting the data. Dr. Rodrigo Zoni, the communicating author for Valleios, said, okay, well, if you're just checking it for fraud and you're not planning to publish a separate paper, got it to me within 48 hours. Um, Even Prof Babalola from Nigeria responded in about, I think, two and a half days and was just, here is the data. Um, Ed Mills, the CI for the TOGETHER trial, that's not out yet, but he's already talked to me about how he's going to give me the data and through what platform when it is out. So... That was a stunning result, partly because the idea that we would pay to check their data for fraud is mind-boggling, and partly just because the idea of selling any data set for you know a thousand dollars is just wild.
0: yeah, we should pay to do what is quite expensive work on our end. Usually, you would pay you would pay accountants thousands of dollars to do this sort of data fraud data yeah. fraud analysis, but we should pay for it. So anyway, um, a long story short through two different other researchers who clearly dr rad was uh liked more personally or thought were on his side i guess yeah. uh, or i don't really know why he sent it but he sent it to two other people for free who then forwarded on to us and it, i i don't know if i can describe viewing this data set for the first time um in anything approaching the right terms but basically i looked at it I quickly did some sorting and I realized that it was the same people copy pasted over and over again. And then Kyle and I had a feverish, I mean, five hour long Twitter DM where we, where we tried to document every single piece of fakery in this study.
1: Which was hard because it is entirely fakery stitched together. It's like um, trying to take a quilt and figure out which bits of fabric. It's all fabric, it's just finding sort of where one bakery ends and the next begins. Um, So I didn't order the data set. So I know that Gid ordered the data set as to some other people and saw the massive duplications, but all the patients were turning up four or five times. I was sort of having been a bit burnt by Elgazar and seeing that repeating pattern of deaths. I noticed first just the medications. I didn't realize the full scale of it and went, because one of the medications is misspelled. And in fact, then I noticed that misspelling down. That was the first thing I noticed at the set. I went, hang on, they misspelled that before. And I did a search and there are a few of them. And when you do, you know, control F on Excel and you go show all, it lists the cells. And then it was really clear to me because it went, it appears in cells 11, 22, 33, (laughs) 44. I went, this isn't just turning up over and over again. This isn't just a duplicate this is turning up exactly every 11 cells. And I still didn't get the full scope of it. I then searched one of the other medication entries for patients on three medications. And that one turned up at eight, 19, 30, 41, and every 11 cells. And I went, at that point, I still hadn't realized when I messaged you kid, have you looked at the medications? They're just repeating over and over again in blocks of 11. But me, you know, being a bit tunnel vision and that same thing about, once you found a fracture, you stopped looking. Didn't realize that the whole patient was repeating every eleven. They just had eleven patients and copied and pasted them over and over again, changing the outcome. So in the control group, it was eleven. I think was it control that was 11? 11, 11, control 11, was 11, eleven,
0: but they didn't change the outcome. They the outcome was also repeating blocks. The only thing they changed between patients were the binary variables which were symptoms. Yep. But the CT, which was their primary outcome, re- repeated in this spreadsheet in exactly the same fashion as height, weight, age, and
1: medication. Death, I think they changed. I think they changed death. I don't think they had death in this data file. Did they? Oh, uh, anyway. Oh, no, I'm thinking, sorry, I'm thinking of El Gazar again. I'm getting too confused. You're right. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but so, and I mean, this, this trial, it's, it's worth noting, the data sheet we were sent originally um, it perfectly replicates the published study, and both of us confirmed
1: this. Yeah, to two decimal places for every single finding at every single time point, every measurement, and every standard deviation, other than one which I think is a typo, which is a rounding error, where there's one that's, I think, 0.5 that should be 0.6. Um, other than that, it is, it is like to two decimal places. This is the data sheet that was used in their study.
0: And I mean, it's hard to really describe how bad that is, because, again, this is another study, and this study was rated in the bryant al. meta-analysis as low risk of bias for almost every domain. I think they have one area where that was at unclear risk of bias, and the data sheet is based on is trivially fake.
1: Yep. That's, and that's sort of, I think that's, that's the other thing from the people who disagree with our suggestion. And I... Again, I'm not saying that it's an unreason—it's unreasonable to disagree. What we're suggesting is an extreme solution. But I cannot in my heart of hearts believe that anybody who looked at the data set for Elgazar, would, even superficially skimmed it, would go, yes, this is legitimate and included in a meta-analysis. And the same for Samaha. No one who even trivially skimmed this data set. Would include it, let alone anyone who applied any sort of fraud checking rubric to it. So I think people sometimes think, oh, well, you know, how much will having the data change? It will change a lot. These are not masterminds. This is not, these are not masterworks of fraud. These are, I can think of one that would be real, which is not a RCT, which is observational study. I can think of one which would require more than sort of trivial effort to show was fake. There's one that was actually very well faked other than a particular issue. But almost all of these, if people had reviewed the data set, they would not have included the trial. Mm.
0: And I, I think it's worth noting very few meta-analyses would incu- include observational data. Of the RCTs yep. that have been faked, uh, one look at the data or, or a trivial half-hour look was enough yep. to have a serious suspicions as to potential fraud, which, I mean, I guess brings us to the final remaining randomized trial that, that is currently in the literature that has found any benefit for mortality, uh, which is yep. a study in Iran co- by a group headed by uh, a Dr. Niai uh, yep. as the first author. Um, so you first asked for the data for this trial, I believe, in June. Is that right?
1: I think it was start of July. So I requested this data three times to the corresponding author. So the actual email given on the paper and the preprint were different. So when I didn't get a response to the paper, I tried the preprint email address. When I didn't get a response to either of those, some days later I tried through their institution, through QOMS, which is the medical school um, in Iran, and still didn't get a response. So at that point I had basically given up on getting a response. I'd tried everything I could, and I so I posted on. Um, pub peer with what my concerns were because at that point I had thought that was the end of the story.
0: And so I think some background here once so in these meta-analyses where you look at kind of mortality benefit. A lot of it is based on the few randomized trials for ivermectin that found a benefit. And basically, there were, there were two of them. There was Ghazal, which is retracted and we've discussed. And there was this other study, Niayetar, where they randomized 180 people to receive either no treatment um, or a placebo or one of four different ivermectin regimens. And they found that people in the ivermectin group, only four of them died. Um, of 120 and in the placebo group or the control group 11 out of 60 people died and so it was about a 70% reduction in mortality so huge reduction very heavy weight in these meta-analyses yeah Um, and so this if you remove this last trial there is pretty definitively no benefit for ivermectin in terms of mortality sorry it, it removes any Benefit that you would have seen and and leaves you with kind of a I guess a null finding is what you would usually call it Where the confidence interval spans both heavy benefit and and heavy uh, heavy potential harm.
1: Yeah, we can certainly say The level of benefit claimed by Elgazar simply not true Ivermectin does not have that benefit the level of benefit claimed by Nayi Not true. Ivermectin does not have that level of benefit You you can almost never exclude a benefit if it's small enough, unless you prove harm, which is very hard to do. Like, it would be impossible to prove that drinking an extra glass of water doesn't cure cancer, because you have to set some sort of minimum threshold there. What we can say is that the level that was claimed by the previous meta analysis I,
0: I think I think you mean that, that drinking water doesn't have some benefit in the cure yeah. of cancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could probably uh, prove
1: that drinking water doesn't cure cancer. You could, you could prove it doesn't cure cancer every time, but you couldn't prove it doesn't cure cancer sometimes. Um, uh, And that's sort of the issue we're in, I think, with ivermectin. Uh, Benefit, that is orders of magnitude smaller than what was claimed, Um, will be very hard to exclude. What we can say is all of these miracle drug claims were false. All of these claims, so, you know, uh, the Hill meta-analysis, the Bryant-Laurie meta-analysis all concluded that more than halved the death rate, that's pretty clearly not true. Um, we can say all of those sort of claims turned out to be incorrect. Um, and I don't think, certainly assuming that Nai will have been retracted by the time this comes out, because I just don't see how it can not be, assuming it's been retracted, all of those claims are dead. They've been killed. And there is not a single, there's not one randomized control trial that showed a statistically significant benefit for death with ivermectin that turned out to be legitimate. Not one.
0: So in terms of Nairal, um, the first thing that I think both of us noticed was that the, they, they tested people for PCR. And, and firstly, this was a very strange thing for a, a, a randomized control trial that claimed to be in covid Uh, When people came into the hospital, so this was a trial of mostly hospitalized patients, although some people who were mild and maybe may have been treated as outpatients, it's a little bit unclear. But they said um, that they tested everyone on PCR, and they found that a large proportion of the people they included in their study tested negative on PCR. So these people didn't have COVID, and they included them in their study on ivermectin for COVID. Now that is bizarre. I mean, just as a very at a basic level if you have people who test negative to covid i can understand why you might run a trial in a place with very low where, where there's a very low income Um, and you don't have access to many PCR tests, I I very much could understand why you wouldn't test people at all and just go by clinical suspicion and say lots of people have COVID in the community and maybe test a small randomized group to see that most of them have COVID. But I cannot understand why you would test every person and not make it part of your inclusion criteria that if some of them don't test positive, sorry, if some of them test negative, they are excluded from the trial. But uh, it got worse.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I'm not com- I am still not completely sure what happened with this trial in terms of is that just a poorly described technique? Did they actually only test some of them and excluded the ones that tested negative? I don't know, um, but regardless of what it is, regardless of what decisions were taken and whether they were sensible or not, you would still expect that whether people have been enrolled in the trial on the basis of a PCR test or enrolled in the trial on the basis of a CT scan, they're going to be fairly evenly spread across the groups. Um, And they're not. They're very clearly not. Uh, The rate of patients being enrolled either with a negative PCR test or without a PCR test, I'm not completely sure what it is, in the people that didn't get ivermectin is wildly higher than the rate in the people that did get ivermectin. And there is no innocent explanation for that um, in a randomized control trial. If you have genuinely randomized and genuinely blinded, there really shouldn't be a way by which these baseline statistics can be so dramatically different from the from being evenly spread. And the other thing that really raised my suspicions about this, even just from the summary data, before we got the data sheet, is that between the preprint and the paper, they added in p-values for Table One, which the consensus is is bad. You shouldn't have p-values in Table One. I actually don't completely agree with that, but that's an incredibly fringe view. Um, but they added in p-values. So what a p-value is is it says what is the chance of this difference occurring by chance if it's genuinely not. A, a difference underlying between the two groups uh, in terms of a cause, shall we say? Um, so it's not the same thing as saying what is the chance that there was an underlying cause. It's saying what is the chance of this happening just by random chance alone? And they put a p-value of about 0.42 uh, for this difference in PCR values. And I looked at them and went, that's crazy. There is no way you have this bigger difference between arms and have a p-value of 0.42. So that says in about 40% of trials, a difference this big will turn up by random chance. In fact, the real number is much, much smaller. It's not even 1% chance. It's not even p equals, 0 point, um, equals 0.01. Like it's orders of magnitude smaller. It is well under 1%. It's a tiny fraction of 1% of trials that would have a difference that big especially on such an important metric as this. I accept that when there's lots and lots of metrics to test, the chance of one of them being uncommon increases. But this is so dramatically different. That's really not a particularly relevant one here. And that's part of the reason I was so keen to get my hands on the data, because I wanted to test the other metrics for whether there were mismatches.
0: So I just want one point that I think is worth quickly discussing. When I've told this to people in the past, they've said, but more people, that means that more people in the ivermectin group had COVID. Doesn't that mean that ivermectin must be more effective than they
1: estimated because COVID is such a nasty disease? What do you say to that? Well, I say, the first thing I would say is no. If you have a patient who, this is not a matter of comparing patients with COVID to healthy patients. This is a matter of comparing patients with COVID to potentially patients with other severe pneumonias that are hospitalised and require whatever the treatment is. So that's actually not a fair assumption. The other thing is it's actually not even about which group it benefits. It's about whether this trial actually occurred and certainly whether it occurred as described. If you have someone who comes out with data that very clearly says they did not do the research that they claim to have done in the way they claim to have done it, To my mind, all bets are off. It's not a matter of, was there an innocent mistake here that might have actually benefited the controls? It's a matter of, is this actually an honest and accurate description of what happened? Yeah,
0: look, that's exactly how I would put it. It doesn't matter if the control group may have could in theory potentially have been healthier, or even potentially less healthy, because of this mistake. What you can say is that what they said happened did not happen, and that is a serious issue.
1: Yeah, the yeah, and I guess if it was just PCR and it was just um, this difference, I actually, when I saw that, didn't I thought that this was going to be legitimate, and there was going to be And I've said publicly that there's probably one centre that has caused this, potentially. There may just be one centre which has broken blinding without the author's knowledge. And part of the reason we had to check this was, one, to check that this mismatch wasn't uh, present elsewhere in other metrics, and also to get an idea as to whether that actually correlated with differences in other really important variables, like was the level of patients with severely low oxygen, which was the first question in my head, different between the two groups, um, or the levels of patients that were hypotensive, that had low blood pressure and might have been in shock, different between the two groups. And part of the problem with scales like oxygen is that just looking at the average between the two groups is almost meaningless because the difference between having an oxygen level of 92 and 100 is very little in terms of your actual um, how clinically sick you are, whereas the difference between 92 and 85 is enormous. So I was really interested in what's the distribution of those patients at the sick end, expecting that most of the deaths would occur in those sick patients. And do you want me to talk about what we found or do you want to talk about?
0: It? Why don't Why don't you do it? Because you were the one who started uh, looking into the actual data sheet. I wasn't sent it technically.
1: Okay. Okay. So sometime time after um, this uh, essentially failure on my part to get the data, I heard from a third party that they had spoken to Dr. Naye directly. Now my assumption had been that this corresponding author, who was the second author, was down as the corresponding author either because he was meant to be the primary point of contact or sometimes from countries where English is not the main language publishing in English language journals, it's just they've got the most language skills. So I didn't go on and try and, you know, break the rules and contact the non-corresponding authors. But then I heard from the grapevine that someone had spoken to Dr. Nye. And so I contacted him directly and said, can I have your data set? And when the data came through, the very first thing I did was I split oxygen and said, who are the patients with an oxygen of 90 or more? And who are the patients with an oxygen of less than 90? And straight away, the oxygen less than 90 um, was... 14 out of 15 deaths. So, you know, it's a really important metric. The only one who didn't was exactly 90. No patient with an oxygen of 91 or more died. So straight away, looking at the mean is just, you know, it's almost useless in a scale like this that runs to 100, that doesn't have a truly linear meaning in terms of importance. Um, And when I looked at that, the results were incredible. So um, the difference for patients with an oxygen of less than 90 was so extreme between groups, the chance of it occurring by chance was less than one in 50,000. Um, and it's I,
0: important to note, what when we're talking about here is not the difference at the end of the study, because obviously you expect yeah. after treatment there to be yeah. some improvement. This is the difference before patients were treated. So when they were, in theory, randomized, and there should be an equal
1: distribution of this sort of thing between all groups, a baseline. Yeah, we we don't expect groups to be completely identical. That's unrealistic, and that would actually cause its own problems. But we can test really quite accurately the sort of probability distribution of how likely is something like this. And when I looked at the blood pressures, in fact, I had to um, go through and correct some typos in the blood pressures because some of them had backslashes instead of slashes, uh, and so weren't processed properly. So I went through and um, pulled out into a new column, what's the diastolic blood pressure? So your blood pressure is actually two numbers, you know, because when your heart beats, the pressure in your arteries goes up, and when it relaxes, the pressure in your arteries goes down, and that top pressure is systolic, and that bottom pressure is diastolic. And in terms of your overall sort of how good your blood pressure is. The diastolic's the more important of the two because that's where your heart spends most of the time. You spend more time with your heart relaxed than with your heart actually uh, doing a pump. And when I looked at those, and I looked at blood pressure less than 75, uh, so diastolic blood pressure less than um, uh, 75, the difference was even more enormous. And in fact, that was so different between groups at baseline when they've supposedly been sorted randomly that that difference coming from random sorting was actually less than one in 10 billion. Now, you can make all the arguments you like that if you look at enough trials, you'll find some differences. But on the first three things I looked at, like, did had they actually tested positive for COVID? Were they severely low on oxygen? Was their blood pressure low? All three of them had differences that ranged from thousands against to tens of thousands against to tens of billions against. You can essentially... In fact, not even a century, you can dismiss the possibility that this trial occurred as performed. And so there are even more extreme differences. So, Gid knows this, but we can look at even more um, uh, sort of uh, mainstream statistical techniques where we don't split the data because there's always some sort of subjectivity in where you split the data. Do you split it at 90, do you split it at 92, oxygen, whatever it may be. And so when we look at the whole number of data sets, we can actually look at two different things. So we can look at what is the difference in the average. So was one group's blood pressure higher or lower than the other? But the other thing we can look at that generally most trialists don't look at as much is we can look at how spread was each group. Something called the variance or standard deviation depending on how you calculate it. And you can look at the differences in this variance with a Levine's test, And that can also give you a p-value of how likely is this to occur by chance. Um, And some of these were enormous. So I calculated these for every group versus every other group. So for six groups, there's 15 possible comparisons. Uh, Because, you know, you can compare one to two, three, four, five, and six, but you can't compare two to three, four, and five, and then so on and so on. And we got so far out of the realms of possibility that it's hard to sort of explain so we got to the power we got to the point where some of these would only occur in one times 10 to the 17 uh, cases so we're talking about a hundred thousand 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 trials or about a hundred million billion trials you could look at every every randomized clinical trial ever published in the history of mankind and and clinical research and you would not find a result like this by chance
0: and this is i mean remarkable right so what we can say basically from that um, which is huge is that this trial cannot possibly have been randomized as described. There is no plausible reality in which there was actually a randomization and allocation concealment in this trial. And it's important to note that in this context, a failure of randomization is not necessarily anyone's fault. I mean, as I said, I run clinical trials. It is quite difficult to maintain allocation concealment and randomization because most doctors want to treat their patients with what they see as the best drugs. And even if there's no conscious effort to give people the medication that they think is working, which obviously is is the one they're testing, because they wouldn't test it if they didn't think that it might work, there is often a subconscious effort, an unconscious effort to try and um, give people the drug. And I mean, there have been amazing stories in clinical trials where people, uh, where they've like randomized into envelopes and people have bought-in really powerful um, flashlights so that they could see where the next envelope says the the patient goes into the interventional control and only pick intervention for their favorite patients. But there are also many, many trials where there's been careful investigation and the allocation concealment must have been broken because of the way the patients have been allocated, but no one has been able to find exactly how that happened.
1: Yep, Um, and I mean... I've recruited for clinical trials before that use sort of the closed envelope system. Um, So one of the ones I recruited for, which was actually a pharmaceutical trial, but not sponsored by the company. We had envelope inside an envelope with the security pattern, like the banks use to stop naughty doctors like me on the front line deciding because there's this natural imperative that you might go in a way that doesn't favor the drug. You might go, Oh, That patient's really sick. We can't afford for them to get the placebo and break blinding with the best of intentions and break randomization in a way that is meant to be an act of charity, but still destroys the study because it biases heavily against the drug. If you are giving the drug to the sickest patients or on the opposite side of things, if you think the drug works and you might go, well, that patient is clearly very sick. They're going to die in the next day or two, no matter what we do let's not waste a drug on them and let's give them the placebo. So often people sort of say to me, you know, how can you attack people? You know, no doctor would do that. And I say to them, a doctor would absolutely do that. But um, really, really bad decisions that destroy studies are made with good intentions all the time. It doesn't, faking a study doesn't require someone to be malignant or malicious, I
0: absolutely agree. I think in general, quite the opposite. The doctors think they're doing the best for their patients. And that's their primary concern. And the fact is that what's best for that for an individual may not be what's best for everybody. Because, And that's kind of the tension in clinical trials. Yeah. But also, I mean, the whole point about running a clinical trial is we're not sure what the benefit is going to be. So people think that they know what the end result is, but often they are wrong and the drug doesn't work. And in that case, you may be giving an ineffective drug to a patient. Anyway, it's not important. The point is that both Kyle and I based on these issues and indeed some other issues that I don't think we even really need to get into because this is sufficient for the trial to be discarded completely. We've both written to the editors. Um, I I identified some different things. So the uh, WBCs, white blood cell counts for the... Uh, patients at baseline are so massively divergent in the control um, and placebo group to the ivermectin groups. I mean, they basically didn't give a single person with whole blood cell, sorry, white blood cell counts above 10,000 ivermectin. And right. obviously white
1: white blood cells, this is, you can explain, Kyle. Uh, so yeah, white blood cell count is a, essentially a reaction to infection. So a higher, it's not perfect, but a higher white blood cell count you would expect to be related to patients who have a more severe infection, just to sort of put it in lay terms. I mean, that's not all you found, but one of the things we found helpful actually is not to go all guns blazing and to keep a second set of problems uh, in reserve because sometimes what happens when we essentially confront authors and we write these, there's no easy way to confront somebody and go, I believe your data is fake, here's why. Um, You know, it's a real shirt front of an email to send. Um, <laughs> you might need often, to explain shirt front to our international uh, listeners. Oh, so shirt front is a bit of an Australian uh expression for sort of you know like bodying someone. Like if you watch ice hockey, you know, a body but check. Bodying sort of is thing. also
0: I think an Australian
1: expression. Okay. Um, <laughs> attacking,
0: attacking someone be, physically.
1: Yeah, very aggressively checking somebody. Um, and you'd be surprised how often these researchers then find a second completely different data set behind the couch, um, which I sort of, you know, Elgazar says he has an actual data set. We haven't seen it yet. There are others that I won't name that Gideon knows who I'm talking about, who then provide a second real data set after we find their fraudulent one, which never matches the paper in the way the fraudulent one did. Um, So it's always...
0: It's not real itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it's often useful to keep four or five problems in reserve so that when they come out with the second data set, you can go, oh, you fixed all the problems we told you about. But for some reason, all the problems we didn't point out are there in this genuine data set, genuine inverted commas data set as well. So we do sometimes come across problems we don't, we keep to ourselves in case the second data set is found in a drawer somewhere or under a couch and for some reason they just had a second fake data set lying around. Um, But Yeah, so we've now been dealing with the editors of that journal for about seven weeks since we pointed out the mismatch in the PCRs. And we certainly have, um, to be fair to them, there has been more information along the way as we got the data set and as some of the more extreme differences have been pointed out. I cannot imagine any journal will not retract a study which has differences between randomised arms at baseline of 10 to the minus 18. It's just it's just not possible. No legitimate journal will keep that on their books. It just won't happen.
0: Simply because there's absolutely no possibility that this trial was randomised as it's described. And, yeah, we, we don't know exactly how that went wrong, but clearly something did go wrong. Yeah. And, I mean, Kyle has the, the patience of, I mean... I don't necessarily know, really. Saints saints don't send thousands of emails, so patience of a saint doesn't quite work. But yeah. he has been on a very lengthy email chain trying to explain why this is an issue with with the study authors. Uh, and, yeah. and I think the hardest part is that we genuinely do not know how this could have occurred or what went wrong here. So you can't necessarily say, well, this is what happened. Why don't you check that? All we can say is this data is not consistent with a truly randomized trial. And explaining that to people who for whom English is not the first language and who may not understand randomization very well based on the, the study.
1: Or statistics at all.
0: Or statistics at all. As again, most doctors do not understand statistics at all. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's yeah, and I often have this sort of I can't tell in my head the difference between someone trying to bamboozle me and someone who just doesn't get it. Um, especially because a Once we have a data set and we go, this study has been faked about, not about any particular studies, but about the studies in general, and we go, this study has been faked. That's still often the start of the conversation. We don't know if the person we email knows the study is fake. Some people, you know, clearly are the ones who've done it themselves and act shocked, you know, how did this happen? Some of the people genuinely go, how did this happen? Because they weren't the ones that um, did it. And it really underlines to me, how important authorship contribution statements are. That that is a that should have been implemented years ago all across the world. There should be every journal that has more than one author author contribution statements.
0: And I think it should it, it is actually very important to say while we've been discussing all these trials, and I'll probably put this also into the uh, the very the intro to the podcast. But we're not accusing anyone specific of having faked data. Yeah. Um most of these trials had quite large authorship teams and and we genuinely are unable to know who made these mistakes all we can say is we were sent this data file and this data file is not consistent with either a real trial or a trial that was appropriately randomized or is not in some cases like professor babalola's study there are simply elements of the data set that aren't consistent with the trial they described and that may have just been a typo in the paper Yep. um it 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 doesn't necessarily and, – and we can say, you know, Professor Babalolo's study is definitely real, the data set is real. Genuine. It just yep. doesn't match what they've written in their paper. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think what Gid's saying is a great point, which is there are so many grey areas, even after saying this study did, did not really occur uh, in the way it was described. Sometimes there are grey areas between was this a decision, is this fake, or is this mistaken – Sometimes the a grey area, sometimes there's not. And then there's almost always a grey area, even if you have that number of studies where you can go, this is not something that happens by mistake, knowing who made those decisions is generally impossible.
0: So I think we're we're getting towards much longer than we originally planned on recording <laughs> anyway, and this is going to be a very long segment regardless. So I think to sum up, um, what, one thing that we're at this point we've when the podcast goes out although not while we're recording we publicly have said that we think around a third of the published ivermectin literature um is either fake or has been uh, the the study was not conducted as described
1: which yeah. essentially means it's worthless as evidence for a point and i think that is a that is very likely to be an extreme underestimate. Because in the way we've calculated that, when we have made our spreadsheet and we've put together which studies we think are fake and we've rated them, that's only the ones where we have positive evidence. The trial did not occur as uh, described. There are lots of of papers there that get the next rung down that don't count in that third, where we go, there are red flags and the authors won't send us their data. And that's, that third is relying on all of those ones where the authors won't just simply will not send us their data being real. So I think a third is really a floor estimate for how much of this is fake. It's not a ceiling.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I found a paper that has apparent image duplications in the manuscript just a few mm-hmm. days ago, and that's not even on our spreadsheet. Yes. <laughs> so
1: Yeah, there's there are all kinds of issues in the literature, and... It's really been hard for me because I've been telling people for years look at what's only look at things that are peer reviewed when you're deciding what works and try not to just pick and choose studies that you like. Look and see if you can find peer reviewed meta analyses because they'll have everything. And all of that advice I've been giving people for years completely failed on this and this pandemic. We've been telling people look at peer reviewed studies and try and find meta analyses. If they did that this time, they got the wrong answer.
0: I mean, that's quite depressing and scary. Um, yeah. it, it's it's sad how much fraud can poison the literature, and I guess that comes back to trust. But we, we definitely are, I guess, over time now. So I think I will just say thank you so much for coming on, Kyle.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. Perhaps, I mean, it sounds like the next episode potentially, or another episode, could be on... Um, some of these other published studies and also i guess ivmmeta.com which we haven't talked
1: about oh we need to talk about that
0: (laughs) (laughs) um so i guess tune in to future episodes if you're interested in that This has been your dose of sensationalist science and media madness. If you like the podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud at SensiPod or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send me messages on Twitter at SensiPod or my main Twitter account at GitMK. Our guest was Dr. Kyle Sheldrick, physician and spine researcher, and there will be more to this story coming soon. Thank you for listening, and remember, if it sounds a little bit too good to be true, it's always worth being sceptical. Have a great week.